The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. I am Buzz Graham, longtime member of this church and um, a ruling elder and on staff as your chaplain. And it's my privilege to read the scriptures before us this day in 2 Timothy, uh, beginning in chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, and I'll read three short excerpts from the, the, this text. 2 Timothy 2.14, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And then in verse 22, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And now in chapter 3, verse 1, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with deceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you for that buzz, and uh, good morning everybody who's uh, here in the sanctuary. Good morning to those out on the breezeway, and also those who are uh, dialing in uh, with us uh, from home. Uh, it's 
Uh, just a, a pastor's joy and a pastor's privilege to get to be with his people in whatever form uh, that takes. And uh, what we're doing right now uh, is we're going through a series in Second Timothy called Life Together. And before I get into this text, I'd like to invite you to, to look at the screen and pray with me a prayer of illumination. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit be our teacher, and your greater glory be our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. And amen. So one of the the primary New Testament metaphors to describe the local church that's used in the Bible is a body. A body. The local church is the body of Christ. And just like a human body, uh, there are ways to keep the body of Christ healthy, and there are also ways that the body of Christ can experience illness and internal disease. There's a medical term that Paul uses to describe disease in the body of Christ here in this passage, and that's the word gangrene. It already sounds gross before I even describe it to you, doesn't it? So gangrene is, is a disease that starts in a subtle way, but if it isn't addressed, if it isn't attacked, uh, it will develop and spread. And it will erode the muscles, it will erode the organs, and it will permanently mar and weaken the body. If gangrene is discovered, just like a tumor, just like a bacterial infection, just like a a virus, just like toxins in the body, any uh, physician worth his or her salt is going to to treat it, Uh, is going to get aggressive with it, to get aggressive with the internal aggressor in order to protect and preserve the body. Now what Paul is saying to Timothy is that the role of a pastor is like the role of a, fish, of, of a physician in one sense of the word, and that is whenever gangrene afflicts the church, it is your role, young Timothy, to attack. You'll be guilty of malpractice uh, if you do not oppose that which tears down in the body of Christ. And so what we're going to do is look at three diseases in the body of Christ that uh, every minister and that every Christian uh, needs to be aware of, needs to be able to diagnose, and also needs to be ready to confront and oppose when it surfaces. And those three diseases are untruth, love of self, and combativeness. Untruth, love of self, and combativeness, these are diseases that need to be contended with uh, in the body of Christ. So let's start with untruth. In verse 15, Paul says to his young protege, a workman must rightly handle the word of truth. And verse 19, build your life and your ministry around this firm foundation of the truth. Verse 17, some in the churches, Timothy, are swerving from the, tr- from the truth. So, so think about one of Nashville's, you know, maybe your favorite narrow, windy road in Nashville. Uh, and one of the things that Nashville is famous for is, is beautiful roads uh, that have a ditch to the right and to the left. 
And if you swerve off, you're in trouble. Think about the car that swerves. You can also swerve spiritually into a ditch that you may not be able to get out of, depending on how deep the ditch is. So when he talks about truth here, the first thing to recognize is that truth actually exists. He doesn't say a truth. He doesn't say Christian truth. He doesn't say uh, truth as I see it and, and feel it and understand it to be. He doesn't say truth according to, uh, to our current culture. He says the truth. The truth. It's a definite article. It's an absolutizing word. As if to say, Timothy, the things that you find here in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, they're not up for debate. They're not up for debate. It is the truth. This brought to mind for me uh, a, a teaching that Francis Schaeffer called antithesis. So Schaeffer was a, a pastor uh, in our tradition. Uh, he was also a philosopher. And he said this about antithesis. He said, if one statement is true, then the opposite of that statement cannot be true. They can't both be simultaneously true. And what you've got in uh, the early church, uh, according to verse 17, is two men named Hymenaeus and Philetus who had infiltrated the church and they are denying a statement of truth. The statement of truth is this, that Jesus Christ died, was buried, descended into hell, and then on the third day he rose again bodily from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and will come to judge the living and the dead. And the other aspect is that because Christ has risen bodily in that way, so will his people. So will the people who trust in Jesus Christ by faith. Resurrection, bodily and in every other way, is part of every Christian's future. Well, these two men who'd infiltrated the church said, well, yes, we we believe in the resurrection, but we believe it's already happened. And what most scholars say is that, 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 that what Hymenaeus and Philetus were saying is that resurrection isn't a literal bodily thing. I mean, we're too enlightened to believe in in miracles like that. It just feels too far-fetched. But but the way that the resurrection has happened is that that the spirit of Jesus still lives in us all. Uh, You know, just a a few weeks ago, many of you know that that we we buried my mother uh, after she passed and we held a funeral uh, for her, and one of the things that my brother said in, in his remarks about our mother is uh, that the that the spirit and likeness of our mother continues with him, with me, with all the people whose lives she touched. Her impact on us now continues in the world through the ways that she's impacted us, and that's that's a little bit of what uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus are saying about Jesus. Oh, he's dead. But his spirit, his life, his likeness continues in his people. And that's what resurrection means, and it's already happened. Well, this, what seems like a subtle shift, this redefining of words and terms, 
which reflects a bias against the miraculous, which reflects a, a bias against the possibility that the, the very God who created everything, including the, the laws of nature, is also powerful enough to suspend his own laws uh, of, of nature in order to make a point that he exists and that, that, that he reigns supreme above all creation. But what these two are doing is they're denying this reality. But what Paul says elsewhere is that the bodily resurrection of Christ and also the future resurrection of his people is a bedrock of Christianity. So much so, it's a bedrock of the truth. So much so that if the resurrection, the bodily resurrection doesn't happen, then, then Christians are to be pitied more than anybody else in the world. What Paul is after here is this. If you deny any truth that is clear and clearly stated in the scriptures, what will happen is this, verse 18, you will be swerving from the truth and you will be upsetting the faith. You will be causing gangrene and it will attack the muscles and the organs of the body of Christ itself. To let error go, Paul says to this young Pastor, to, to just turn a blind eye to error will lead to erosion. It will lead to rotten fruit. And, and here's how he describes it. If you go down this road of allowing false teaching to stand in the church, here's what's going to happen down the line. People will become lovers of self and of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than being lovers of God, hypocrites who exploit the weak. Who wants to be a part of that kind of community? But that's where the community is going the moment we decide that certain truths are no longer true for us. He says, rightly handle the word of truth young pastor. The literal translation there from the Greek is cut straight. Cut straight. You know, Patty and I watched uh, the movie Titanic again for the first time, uh, or, or, or for the 15th time, uh, uh, or whatever number of times we've seen Titanic. Uh, I think it was last week we saw Titanic. And what sank the Titanic was what started out as just a miniature uh, course adjustment. You, 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 you cut a straight line and, th and then you veer to the right or to the left of that line even by one degree, you will end up hitting an iceberg somewhere. And you'll end up sinking somewhere eventually. We think these little compromises and these little concessions that we make for ourselves these little ways that we say, oh, I think I'm going to go with my feelings on this one, or oh, I think I'm going to go with, with, with what prevailing culture says right now, or oh, I think I'm going to go with something other than what the, the scriptures clearly say, it will lead to disaster. You know, the first time I ever met Kyle Banks, it was at this, uh, at this sort of open forum, and I was one of a couple of panelists, and I was sort of contending for, for Christian belief around a certain... Uh, subject uh, where, where modern culture is, is confronting the long-held uh, uh, Christian ethic on, on a certain area of, of ethics and morality. And one graduate student raised her hand in objection to my defense of, 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 
of what's, what's been you know, a long-held belief uh, for Jews, Christians, uh, as well as Muslims and, 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 and other historic you know, religions that look to the Old Testament as, as some version of authority. And she said, can't you just give up this one thing? I know what the Bible says, but can't you just give up this one thing? Because the culture is going this way and the Bible is going this way. And, and my answer to that was what it says elsewhere in the New Testament, that, that if, we, if we break the law of God at one point, we've actually broken all of it. If we say that one area of what God has said is irrelevant, we're saying that all of what God has said is irrelevant because all of a sudden we are becoming the critics. We are becoming the ones who scrutinize what God has said rather than God being the critic of us and and, and rather than God scrutinizing our ways of thinking. Who's the designer after all? Who's the maker of who after all, right? Dan Doriani and Richard Phillips in their commentary on Second Timothy say this, many a heresy or many a false teaching begins with a misguided quest for originality. One of the things this means is that sometimes the best sermons are the boring ones. The ones where you, you, you've heard it all before, a million times before I've heard that. If anybody has ever ventured to read the whole Bible through, I think you understand the frustration sometimes and the mundaneness of repetition. You read through the Old Testament, okay, already, Sabbath good, Sabbath breaking bad, I get it. Okay, idolatry bad, worship of the one true God, good, I get it. Okay, when everyone does what's right in their own eyes instead of doing what's right in the Lord's eyes, it's disaster. I get it, over and over and over and over again. Same thing said over and over and over again throughout the whole Old Testament. And then we get to the New Testament, and instead of having just one gospel account of Jesus' life, we have four. Why do we have all this repetition in the scripture? It's for the same reason that the person I believe is one of the best English-speaking preachers of our century, Tim Keller, only has one sermon. He has one sermon. He's just learned to preach it 1,800 different ways. But that one sermon is the gospel changes everything. Every sermon ends with that message. Every sermon leads to that. The gospel changes everything. But he says it 1,800 different ways. Sometimes the best sermons are the ones that repeat the things you've heard a million times over. That's true about the best songs as well. What is the chief end of a worship service? Is the chief end of a worship service to have an aesthetic experience that, 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 that takes my breath away, that sweeps me up and, and, and takes me to another place? That could certainly be part of it. But the aesthetic experience has to be valued and treasured as a byproduct, not as the substance of what really good worship is. You know what really good worship could actually be more mundane than spectacular. It could actually be more simple than out of this world. When you come into the sanctuary, you shouldn't expect a Bridgestone experience. 
That's not what God wants for us, primarily. Even though, again, that might be a byproduct. What God wants is that his people be transformed by the renewing of their minds. That, Romans 12 says, is your spiritual act of worship. To be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Who would, get, who would, who would agree to get open heart surgery from a surgeon who says, my credentials are, I'm self-taught. I, I learned how to operate on hearts on YouTube. And I think I'm pretty good at it. No, you want somebody who's been through the rigor of, of medical school. You want them to have made really good grades. You, you want them to have crushed their residency and, and done so much repetition that they could do it in their sleep with, with, with a blindfold on. You want expertise. And, and where does expertise begin? Education. That's why you send your kids to school. That's why we value learning. Because from the mind, you know, goes the rest of the life. And so when Nate Tasker and I begin every week planning the next week's service, we start with the same body of content. Here are all the commentaries, here's the text, here's the scripture. And you may not realize this or not, but there are two sermons that are prepared for you every week. The sermon that I preach and the sermon that Nate creates through the crafting of liturgy around the same gospel themes. Chalked full, especially of rich, theologically accurate, sound, biblically, uh, hymnody and, and, and modern songs. And the two things that we, we both know we must bring to the people in order to get out of the people's way and out of God's way for God to do his work is we need to bring the reality that we have both been with Jesus on these things in the week before. And we need to bring the reality that it is the truth, much more even than an aesthetic experience, that changes people, that transforms lives. So that's number one. Untruth, it's poison. Untruth, it's gangrene. Untruth, attack it. It's even a little bit, going a little bit off course of cutting straight can lead to complete disaster. Secondly, the love of self. That's really where untruth comes from is the love of self it's esteeming my own opinion over what God has said is true and to this Paul says flee youthful passions the word is epithumia it means inordinate loves it it means taking a good thing and turning it into an ultimate thing it means it means pushing God out of the center and putting yourself in the center such that God and other people become supporting actors in the story that you're writing that is centered around you and your life. God is no longer Lord. Now he is your personal consultant and your personal assistant. That's what a lover of self, that's where love of self leads, is the decentering of God and the centering of me in all things. But, but when the truth and the one who is the truth, Jesus Christ, is taken, taken out of the center The only alternative is for us to create our own center and become our own center. It's what you could call a shift in in, in our assumption about where authority comes from. See, if we're building our lives around this, it means that, that, that we assume that authority comes from outside of us. That our creator and designer and master and king speaks into our lives 
and teaches us what healthy belief systems are and what healthy living is and what healthy community is and what healthy relationship with our neighbors looks like. But when the love of self enters the picture, the truth all of a sudden becomes my truth. And authority, rather than coming from outside of me, now comes from inside of me. Now, American individualism supports this approach. But here's the thing. If truth for me comes from inside of me and truth for you comes from within you, what do we do with Schaefer's concept of antithesis? Do we hold on to it? You know, that if if one thing is true, if, if my truth is true and your truth directly opposes my truth, that your truth can be true too? Or is one of us wrong? Or are both of us partially right and partially wrong? How do we know if the source of truth comes from within us? If, if we've shifted from the truth to my truth, as American individualism tells us to do and models for us, I would contend the same thing that Paul contends here. That if that's our approach then we can no longer say that abuse, racism, greed, genocide, lying, and cheating are moral evils. We can't anymore. Likewise, we can no longer say that kindness, generosity, truth, justice, and love are moral goods. Well, but yes, we can. How can we? Well, the majority, whatever the majority believes call it public truth. Well, we've got to ask then, who's public truth? The public truth of the American majority or the Chinese majority? The white majority or the black majority? The democratic majority or the Republican majority? The 21st century majority or the first century majority? The belief system of my current self or the belief system of myself 15 years yesterday or 15 years tomorrow? Because we are always changing as individuals. One version of you is inconsistent with all the other versions of you and of me. When when my source of authority is me, then the only thing I have left is my culture against your culture, my values against your values, my feelings against your feelings, my truth against your truth. And when this happens, we, 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 we're actually on a collision course with all of the destruction that the Apostle Paul describes here, especially the destruction of combativeness that manifests in the form of gossip, slander, backbiting, partisan politics, and partisan political tactics. C.S. Lewis says this, God made us. It's not the other way around. It's not that we made God, it's that God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline. It would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace outside himself because it is not there. It doesn't exist. 
If, if we trade the truth that comes from God for my truth that comes from within me, then we're on a collision course not only with the fabric of the universe as God has created it, but we're also on a collision course with each other. All that's left for us is a Darwinian battle for power between us. Survival of the fittest. The strong eat the weak. Which brings us to the last disease that must be combated. And it's combativeness. He warns in verse 14 against quarreling about Words. He goes on in verse 23 to say, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies that breed quarrels. Or you could go back to his first letter to Timothy, the last chapter, chapter 6, where he says, there are actually people in churches. Can you, remind, can you imagine this, you guys? There are actually people in churches who crave controversies and quarrels. Pam Benton, have you ever heard of such a thing? People in churches that crave controversies and quarrels? That's never happened in your long, illustrious career in ministry, has it? Wilson, no, never, yeah, me neither. Never in churches. He doesn't just talk about the existence, he talks about the craving for a fight, to bicker, especially around words. You know how this plays out? I was looking over at Micah and Christina Edmondson, both of whom have had public ministry for many years. They're both nodding along this morning at the earlier service. Here's what a controversy about words looks like. It happened to Jesus all the time too. You say, you, you say something and there, there's 10,000 words in what you say. And somebody takes 10 of those words out of context. And then creates an entire narrative and discards the 10,000 words that you said and put it over here. And then they take their out of context statement and turn it into another 10,000 words. And say that's what they really said. That's what they really meant. Ha! Gotcha! Got him. It happened to Christ all the time. It happened to Timothy. It happened to Paul. It's happened to Tim Keller, my mentor. You know, he's, he's, he's written about this in, in, in essays and in books. He says, he says you know, the, the, the odd thing about being in his shoes is that he has received more criticism, substantially more criticism over the years for things attributed to him that he actually doesn't believe than for the thing he, things he actually does believe. Isn't that crazy, you guys? I know that's happened to each and every one of you in different contexts as well. I know it happens to you in every conversation you get in about politics. Oh, you're one of those Marxists, aren't you? Oh, you're, you're one of those you know, racists, aren't you? Right? You, you can't even have a conversation anymore. Because, you know, your 10,000 words is, 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 you know, cherry-picked and then turned into some other narrative that, that, that you don't even recognize. And it happens in churches, you guys. But here's what Paul's saying. A combative saint is not a saint. John Stott put it this way. The church always includes combative people. They are less dedicated to the faith than they are to their version of it. Francis Collins, who's a um, remarkable scientist in the field of genetics, gave a speech at the National Academy of the Sciences earlier this year. And in that speech, he actually started talking about how his faith informs 
uh, his work in science and in public health. And he also talks about how his Christian faith motivated his good friendship with atheist scientist Christopher Hitchens. And in in this speech, among other things, Collins said this, how might we heal our land? Let me make three suggestions. First, we need a renewed commitment to truth and reason. Second, we need to be re-anchored in those ancient spiritual truths that provide a rock upon which we can build our future. Go back to the Beatitudes. Third, we need to return to our calling to love one another. And not just those who agree with us, but also our enemies. Love is stronger than hate. You cannot pray regularly for someone and continue to despise them. If you don't believe me, try it. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them together in perfect unity as the scriptures say. Can you imagine, he goes on, can you imagine what might happen in our fractured society if we try to live out this exhortation? If this is possible outside of the life of the church between Francis Collins and his atheist friend Christopher Hitchens, should it not be not just possible, but but morally imperative for this description to be true inside churches. I'll leave you with a final image before we go to the Lord's table. And that is the image, the visual image of the American State of the Union Address. Now imagine you're already seeing it the same way I'm seeing it right now. Whoever the president is, this is every administration, left and right, They get up and they make a series of statements. And with every statement, half of the room stands up and applauds. The other room sits down in protest. I don't know if there's been an exception to this. At least not in my memory, in my lifetime. That's how the house works out there. But in here, especially for the next two months, and here's what I want to do. I want to give us a vision for what it could and must look like among the people of God, the blue state people of God and the red state people of God under the same roof, which is the case in our church. We should always be standing and sitting at the same time for the same things. We should be hard to figure out as the world looks in on us. Because sometimes the world will see right-leaning people standing up for characteristically left-leaning causes and left-leaning people standing up for characteristically right-leaning causes. This happened four years ago when we did our Election Week Politics Forum where Democrat Michael Ware and Republican Governor Bill Haslam did an interview that, that, that Samantha Fisher conducted. And by the end of the night, we realized, oh my goodness, they are both pro-life. They are both opposed to injustices of all kinds, racial injustice, gender injustice, injustice toward the poor. They're both fighting in those arenas as well. They're both in favor of the flourishing of the nuclear nuclear family. They're both in favor of free speech. Uh, What's going on? 
at the end of the day, it seemed like they, they agreed on every single moral issue because of King Jesus. And the only thing they disagreed on was certain philosophies about how to get certain things done. If there's a camera in the sanctuary, the American Christian Church sanctuary for the next two months, what will the outside world see? Here's what I want to propose for us as Christ Presbyterian. And I think this is already the case for the most part. That we will all stand in unison, regardless of where we are on the American political continuum, that we will stand in unison around religious freedom, around the sanctity of all human life from womb to tomb, around strengthening marriages and families and children, around seeking mercy and justice for the poor and vulnerable, around pursuing racial justice and reconciliation and gender equality, around promoting peace and restraining violence, around the cultivation and care and flourishing of the environment in the world that God created. As one previous president of the United States, also a Roman Catholic, said, let us not seek the Republican or the Democrat answer, but the right answer. And you know what the byproduct of this will be? Unity in the church, the absence of combativeness, which is a moral imperative, it's not optional. It's part of the truth. Combative saint is not a saint. And a reestablishment of the Christian witness in a fractured society. By this, all people will know, Jesus said, that you belong to me, that you love one another. It shouldn't be lost on us that in the crowd, when he said those words, were big government Matthew and small government Simon, his two politically opposed disciples. That being said, I want to now transition us into agreeing in prayer with this unifying prayer from St. Francis of Assisi. So I'll, I'll invite you to stand with me as we pray this together. Everyone in unison, standing together around these things. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, union. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light where there is sadness, joy. Grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the bread and the cup. Father, you paid a great, great cost in giving up your son to establish the truth, to decenter the love of self, and to tear down all dividing walls between your own holiness and our own sinfulness and rebellion against you and through that to tear down dividing walls between even Jews and Gentiles 
Father, thank you that we can give up the exhaustion of the combative life. Thank you that, 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 that what remains for us is being unified around your table, which is our strength and which is our healing. Would you consecrate, would you set apart this bread and this cup to feed us physically, that our bodies might be healthy, and to feed us spiritually, both individually and collectively, that the body might be healthy and free of gangrene. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.